0: Welcome to the Leading with Data Podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of data, strategy, leadership, and results. The show is brought to you by Molecula and I'm your host, Jason Dorsey. Let's dive in. Welcome everybody to another exciting episode of Leading with Data the podcast where we talk about the intersection of data, the future, strategy, and so much more. And I am incredibly fired up to have a VIP guest on today, Hal Stern. Hal is the Vice President and Chief Information Officer of Research and Development at Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which is one of the Johnson & Johnson companies. I am so thrilled to have you with us today, Hal. Thanks so much for joining.
1: Well, Jason, spoken like uh, truly someone who's had a snow day there today in Texas. So <laughs> thanks for having me on the show.
0: It was a very rare snow day here in Austin, Texas, and uh, extremely exciting for my daughter. So thank you for noticing. <laughs> so, so Hal, you know, I love to always start off our show with just a, a bit of background about you. So how did you get into your current role?
1: So I did not start off in life sciences. I actually started off as a reform system administrator, Uh, worked for a variety of technology companies, primarily at Sun Microsystems. Uh, I was there from 1989 through the dot-com boom, through the dot-com bust, through the long, slow build-out of the internet, um, and then eventually the Oracle acquisition. Uh, I left uh, Sun Microsystems in 2010. Uh, I went to Juniper Networks where I uh, was a VP of network architecture, network management, and uh, network virtualization. And honestly, after more than 20 years of commuting back and forth to California uh, and building out products, I, I discovered really three things. Uh, number one is I did not like spending a lot of time on airplanes. Uh, number two, I was <laughs> I much, <could> <laughs> happier, much happier when uh, I was actually designing solutions. Rather than products, uh, much more of a, you know, what's it going to go do for the customer or, or the consumer rather than, hey, here's a really cool tool. You know, here's some, some new bright and shiny technology. Um, and the third thing is uh, there are a number of problems I found that were borderline intractable. And one of the things I found fascinating about networking is the problems were exceptionally large. They're all graph oriented. Uh, they're all very data rich. Uh, and a lot of them, we simply can't solve perfectly. You know, how do you optimize a network? How do you optimize bandwidth? They're all Those are all relatively unsolved and, and, and too complex to be solved problems. If you look at life sciences, you have the same set of problems, but they're two to five orders of magnitude larger. And the, the societal impact of solving them is significant. And, and I had a friend of mine who I'd known from my Sun Microsystems days who gave me a call and said, hey, would you be interested in coming over to Merck? This is about seven years ago. I said, you know, wow, it's in New Jersey. So okay, check mark. No more airplanes. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. it's life sciences. So really hard problems, really interesting, very data driven. Check mark. Um, and uh, it has a really great, you know, social impact. You know, third check mark. So I switched industries and literally spent the, the first six months just trying to figure out which end was up. And when you when you come out <laughs> of technology and you go to Uh, the enterprise space, it's not about the cool technology. It's about what are you going to do for the business? How are you bringing them insights and innovation that matter to them? And that was a, you know, even at that ripe old age as a technologist, it was a lot of a learning curve for me. It was sort of a, you know, not a straight up learning curve, but one that that took a while to to, to climb. So I was uh, at Merck uh, in the office of the CIO and then the Merck Research Labs for about six years um, and got a call from J&J. And, you know, when J&J calls, you know, you, you answer. <laughs> like in the year <laughs> one days of technology, if IBM called, you, you answered. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, joined them um, about a year and a half ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, really obviously exciting time. I, I used to joke around that every time I switched companies, something interesting would happen. In my very first job, the company had a large contract with IBM. IBM canceled. So people were walking out with boxes my first day on the job. My first day at Sun Microsystems, the company announced a loss. And layoffs, so I like, okay, another great time. So this time we just brought, I had a global pandemic. So I was, you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know whether it's I'm, I'm getting better at it or, or the world's just getting crazier or both.
0: Wow. That's uh, one amazing journey. And two things sort of jump out at me there. One is that you did make this this big transition, right? You, you, you shifted gears in terms of industries, which is a huge deal. And then the second was the the desire to have social impact. And I think so often when people talk about data, you know, we talk about outcomes and so forth, but I think the social impact piece for me is incredibly inspiring and very important. And I'm I'm really fired up that that's something that uh, clearly motivates you. And I'd love to ask just sort of a follow-up to that, if it's okay. What, you know, is there anything that you learned about yourself through this period of time. I mean, you sort of made the joke of each of these new things you started, something sort of awful happened and you still made it amazing and were able to help these companies. But is there anything you learned about yourself sort of going through this process uh, as you change different sort of careers and then ultimately industries and so forth? Anything that you learned about yourself?
1: I think uh, what you're, I I guess two things. Um, First is I've always been something of a misfit. uh, And for a while I thought of that as, as perhaps a strange badge of honor. And, uh, just recently I finished Olga Kazan's book, weird. And it was like, I read this story of my life, but told from the <laughs> perspective of someone who was a, a Russian immigrant who grew up in Texas, as opposed to a Ukrainian immigrant who grew up in New Jersey, um, or the grand, the grandson of, of Ukrainian immigrants. And, but it, it was like, Wow, that's that's what it's like. It, it's okay to be weird. It's okay to be different. It's okay to. One of my HR partners once called me countercultural because I didn't like wearing socks. And I always thought that was weird. It's like, well, um, no, I just don't like wearing socks because I don't like socks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yes, I know that's an accepted convention, but that's just me. And rather than, I guess, feeling shame for that, I was like, okay, that's just who I am. And along the way, this this sort of coming to grips with. You know your your unique perspective and how you look at problems and how you um, think about solving problems. I benefited along the way from I would say a large number of really good, really serious mentors who were not afraid of the weird. Um, the guy who hired me at Merck um, used to call us the island of misfit toys, and, and <laughs> not not too facetiously, <laughs> because he just collected people who didn't have a better place to be. Um, uh, for a while, I worked with Burt Sutherland at Sun Microsystems, and you know, Burt, when he was at Xerox PARC, brought together all these amazing researchers in very large-scale systems integration and computer design and human-computer interface. And you know, every time you use a mouse or a heads-up display, uh, thank Burt Sutherland for for work that he did, you know, now 50 years ago by investing in the weird. Uh, and I, I think. One well, of the realizations I've had is you know it, it's good it's good to be different it's good to be you know nonconformist. Um, you know, David Epstein covers this in his book Range to a a very very high degree of detail in terms of how you find different skills that people bring and, and how you really build a team of, of you know <laughs> to put it not too bluntly you know to build a team of weirdos and that's a good thing. So <laughs> well, I'm, I'm proud to, proud to be weird.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, as uh, I myself have taken a very unconventional path, so I, I find. Great, uh, inspiration in what you just shared, you know, I mean, I, I started college really early and then left college to write a book and ended up sleeping on the floor of a garage apartment. And then, uh. Ultimately, been pursuing this now for more than twenty years, and it's been a blast and completely unpredictable. So,
1: (laughs) So author, author, rock and roller, data scientist. all—you're sleeping on the floor of someone's garage at some point.
0: Yeah, I mean that's just the way it goes, and and Mm -hmm. I love the journey. It's definitely been an exciting one. Well, so switching gears a little bit into the data conversation, I'd love to know—you've obviously seen uh, data through the lens of a lot of different companies, and vice versa. You've seen, you know, a lot of companies through the lens of data. What do you think is the most important decision? that you have made using data, and and how did it work out?
1: I'm going to give you an inverted answer to that. Um, Perfect. The decisions, it's the decisions we haven't made because I don't think we had enough data. And as we have gotten significantly better at data science, it is still largely pattern-matching. And, you know, we we train our, our our machine learning systems based on what we hope is a sufficiently broad and representative input set. And we, 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 we vectorize it, we differentiate the vectors, we, we build up weights and say, okay, that, this is really good. I can now differentiate um, a spider crawling out of a corner from a starfish, even though they both look like they have five legs and a small circular body. You know, I'm pretty good at that. And yet I can take any variety of of image recognition systems and find adversarial inputs for them, whether it's fried chicken and labradoodles or chihuahuas and blueberry muffins. You can fool a lot of systems because they haven't been sufficiently trained with a broad enough input. Human disease is effectively an adversarial input to all the immune systems of your body or all of your normal endocrine systems of your body. It just is. So our body's pretty good at this pattern matching of, oh, that doesn't belong here. Let's go, let's go kill those cells. And we can, we can, you know, evolve it along the way. It's what vaccinations do. It's what, you know, our learned immune system does. Um, and yet, you know, we still get sick and and we do that because disease evolves and, be, and because we evolve. Um, so as we want to understand human biology, want to understand the mechanism of disease. I think people figured, well, once. Once we've sequenced a genome, that's it. We'll just, the drugs will automatically discover themselves. We'll just feed everything into Google and, and the answer will come out the other end. It, it's, I wish it were that simple, but it's not. It's really, we don't understand enough and the, the combinations are so computationally complex and so incredibly large uh, in terms of the input space that we have to be careful not to jump at the bad science. I guess, I guess the, the non-answer is uh, resisting the temptation to, to look for correlation without um, very, very strong scientific causation. And I think we're getting better at it, but it is going to be using machine learning to amplify what the scientists do, not to replace them. You mm-hmm. still There's a lot of scientific discovery we, we just haven't gotten into. Hopefully, we'll make it easier, better, faster, but we still have to go do it.
0: Yeah, it's really, you know, one of the things that I know I've heard the team over at Molecular say is, you know, you still need people, right, in order to make all of this really work. And uh, and that, you know, we can really bring out the strengths of everybody when you approach this the right way, which gets me really excited and, and to hear you say that. So so sort of going in a different direction then, since you already uh, went off track, which is what I love, uh, what is a, an unexpected opinion you have about data or the future of data? I'm really excited to hear this
1: answer. So, um, We tend to think of data like a a commodity. You know, it's oil. It was as it was on the cover of the Economist, and it's not. Uh, It's not because a commodity, whether it's orange juice or bacon or oil, you use it once and it's gone. You you definitely do not recycle bacon. Uh, But data, we use it and we reuse it and we remix it and we find new value in it. It's music. And that is the change that the music industry went through when we began to not just digitize music, but realize that there was enormous value in remixing music, in sampling. And this is something that has happened, if you go back to the, the early days of bebop, it was the staple of jazz musicians. And then in the early days of hip hop, the notion of sampling and remixing, you know, very much fueled an industry where you had older artists being given a new audience and new artists being able to draw on an incredible musical legacy. And- um, to bring those two things together created something that not only cross genres, but, but really helped build out, you know, I would say a, a real rebirth of the music industry. We need to do the same thing with data. We need to stop thinking of it as something that you use once or something that's owned by one person. The value of data is going to be, can I combine these things together? Should I combine them together? Do I respect the rights of everybody when I combine them together? Let me give you an example of where this gets weird. So, you know, I am now, if you, if you could see me with my, my face for radio, holding up my iPhone. Okay, my iPhone is a, a very, very good uh, location sensor. Tells you where I am. That's great. If I want to find myself in New York City or um, route finding with ways, it's wonderful. If I look at my location over time, now you know how fast I'm going. So now you know my position and you also know my velocity. It's also my music player. Uh, and it also collects all of my uh, self-care health data. And individually, those things are very, very useful and not particularly interesting. Okay, you know, your heart rate's a little elevated in the morning, and you drive out to, you know, your office in New Jersey every day. Uh, But when you put them together, okay, Stern drives 75 miles an hour at 830 in the morning on an interstate highway, listening to Norwegian death metal with an elevated heart rate. Oh, my goodness. If you're my insurance company, like all the red lights just went up on the dashboard. So individually, who cares? Put them together, remix them, and you start to say, wow, this is interesting. And I look at that as an enormous privacy incursion. I'm not happy with that. So if you want to look at my data, you can look at those things. I'm fine to have Google go tell me where I am. I'm fine to help it, you know, have it help me route, you know, to some restaurant I've never been to before. But don't do that while also looking at my playlist and my heart rate and you know the time of day. Because at, at some point you've crossed the line of what you could fairly do in remixing that data.
0: Got it. I love that. Such an interesting opinion uh, and perspective. I really like that. And I love the fact that you inform it sort of coming from all these different backgrounds, which which leads into my next question. So given that you talked about the Sun experience and then Merck and J&J and so forth, when you think about your leadership roles, because you've had a lot of them, what do you think is most important when it comes to being an effective leader now? I mean, you've learned and seen a lot What do you think is most important? I particularly like the angle you take about weird and, uh, you know, misfit (laughs) toys and so forth. Obviously that resonates with me, but what do you think is most important?
1: Uh, Again, I'll give you, it's a two sided answer. First is, is a real focus on ethics. Should we be doing this? You know, is it the right thing to do? And are we doing it the right way? And I think these ethical arguments come up again and again and again in engineering context. So New York city replaced almost all the turnstiles on the MTA Over the last couple of years, so they used to have the regular turnstiles that were, you know, slightly higher than waist height, about the height of a table. And if you were significantly more athletic than me, you could hop over them. You're fair stealing. They replaced what they call the high entry turnstiles. They look like a a set of combs that interlock and they run uh, floor to ceiling. So fair theft is impossible. It just makes evacuation a lot slower. So, was that ethical? Was that a good engine It was a good engineering decision from a fair theft point of view. Was it a good engineering from a public safety point of view? And I think the more we start to look at the data that we have, um, we, we have to keep in mind that there are people on the other side of that data, whether it's someone whose behavior you're looking at online or if I'm trying to figure out you know what the mechanism of disease is and, and how I measure the disease progression, uh, there are always people involved. That's, that's why we do this, uh, whether it's their behavior or their purchasing power or them as, as individuals who are talking about their healthcare. And we have to be unbelievably res- respectful of that. And I would say the second part of that is, so now, you know, we say, okay, we're, we're comfortable with the ethics of what we're doing. Should we even do it? Is this our market? One of my uh, very early mentors, you know, we were talking about future design of computer workstations uh, would, would frequently trot out what I call the wheelbarrow example. And You know, people would say, well, you know, if we build a workstation, it had this graphics card, we could go after this market. If it had this sound card, we could go after the gamer market. And eventually it'd say, but those are not our markets. That's true, but that's not what we do. And I think sometimes it's very, very tempting to say, well, we should go after this market because it's a $3 billion market. Wheelbarrows are a $3 billion market. But if you are in the computer workstation business, if you're in the PC business, that's not your market. Now, yes, you could take a PC and bolt it to a wheelbarrow, but it doesn't mean you've now entered a wheelbarrow market. It just means you have a really dirty PC. And you have to be very careful. There's so much going on. And again, there's so much overlap, I would say, now. that The lines, what used to be a clear edge between industries has truly blurred. And that's whether you think about the impact of networking or the impact of, of being online most of the time or the way in which we use data. The fact that all of our businesses are networked. The lines between where one business ends and the next one begins are blurry. And so you have to eventually say, what's the edge of my business? And I'm going to go that far, but no further, because then I start to dilute what I can really do. So Mm -hmm. there's a business ethics, which is, you know, be, be true to the core of what you do. And there's very much an operational ethics, which is, well, should we even be doing it?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I know I've seen lots and lots of companies try to veer into attractive markets that aren't core to them because it was a shiny nickel and it's definitely not worked out for most of them. Uh, so that's that's some good advice to heed there. Just because it's a big market doesn't mean it's the one you should go into. <laughs>
1: always think like, you know, is this a wheelbarrow or not? You know, because again, you can always enter the wheelbarrow market by taking whatever you have and putting it in the wheelbarrow. You're now a wheelbarrow maker, but yeah, doesn't necessarily yeah. mean it's a good idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, but, uh, so these two uh, are are sort of combined now. I'm thinking about my next question. So uh, you've sort of answered this. Maybe you have a different way to approach it, but I would still like to hear uh, how has data shaped your overall leadership strategy?
1: I think, again, it's um, first and foremost is is that realization that there are people on the other side, right? Whether we're talking about operational efficiency or organizational efficiency, we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about, about what they do. Uh, the second is to truly understand the domain of the data, that that we understand what it means. And we understand if what we have is sufficient, if what we have is meaningful, um, if we're using the data appropriately uh, to go build our models. And again, I think when, when you look at classical computer science, so I'm going to write the code and you're going to give me the inputs, I'm going to feed them in, and out comes a very deterministic output. The answer is 42. Um, and when you're talking about things like machine learning, um, what you're getting is a probabilistic answer. We think this is what it is. And, yeah, you know, with a high degree of probability, but, you know, there are three or four other things it could be. Um, as soon as you start dealing in probabilities, you want to make sure that the way in which you generate them is, is really, really, really accurate. Um, I'm a... I'm a big fan of Andy Duke and and the book she's written about decision making, and she's always talking about how you collect more information. You know, she, she comes at this from the perspective of a uh, a, a world class professional poker player, but how you collect information, particularly the information you're getting, may be incomplete or or intentionally incorrect to build your models. So you know, first up, you know, realize it's it's always about people. Second, you know, is make sure the data and the models that we have are applicable. And and that you really have confidence in them, Um, and I I would say the third thing is um, to use this to make explainable decisions. I I think a lot of times people always see reality from their perspective. You know, they'll 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 look at um, anything from you know how many people are working on a project to what they think you're spending on a project to um, you know what they think the demographics of a particular situation are, and. When you come back with data to explain it, not in a vindictive way, but the way to be able to say, here's what the data show, and you can explain why you made a particular decision or why you feel you know a, a particular approach is the correct one, um, it does it in a way which is um, very hard to argue with. It's it's like uh, it's like you know, you can you can keep scoring a game and the score is the score. Now you could argue about what the referee call was. You can argue about who's a better player, but at the end of the day, it's the score of the game that counts because that's something that you can count. And you know, again, people might argue about how you got there, but the scoreboard s- sort of tells this immutable truth at the end. So you think about you want to go explain something in that in the context in which you're removing all interpretation from it. You're you're coming up with this common language to help people understand why and how you've made decisions. It's very, um, again, it's getting increasingly challenging because of the volume of data we have, Uh, but it's also increasingly important because absent that explanation and transparency, people will find their own conclusions.
0: Ah, brilliant. I love that. Okay, so, so now let's go from sort of what we've learned to looking ahead. What is one prediction you have about the future of data and business? Love so, to hear I can't wait to hear this one actually. I'm so ready um, for
1: this. All right. So so let me ask you a question. Do you recycle? Do I recycle? Yeah, do you recycle? Do you recycle your glass at home? Uh yes. Uh-huh. Okay. So I'm gonna drive over to your house later on. because um, a mutual friend of ours told me where you live. And I'm gonna <laughs> take all the wine bottles out of your recycling and take pictures of them and post them on Instagram and wine shame you for drinking bad wine.
0: Okay. You are suddenly
1: less interested in recycling. <laughs> um, and this is the trail of data we leave behind now. It is, it is, um, we tend to think, well, you know, I don't really, you know, worry about it if if you know I'm I'm gonna use these free online services and I know they're collecting my personal data and you know in exchange for advertising dollars, but I'm okay with that. And the point at which it turns into wine shaming, it's not okay anymore. And this idea of what do we consent to be done with our data and how do we consent you know for our data to be used and to be remixed. Is going to be important, and I think the the prediction I'll make is what we saw happen in the publishing world, where copyright in the in the analog world was very very simple. You you have a book, you buy a book. It is an instantiation of the book. It is a copyrighted piece of, of writing, um, and that was it. And you know, very few people went out and photocopied the entire book and, and passed out copies to their friends. It was just wasn't cost effective. It's better to go you know buy a book buy a book and give it to to your friend. Um, with digital assets. Now we have a change in that, which is it's very easy to make copies. So what we saw happen, uh, largely led by by Lawrence Lessig and the, the idea of the Creative Commons, was this idea that you could have multiple degrees of rights. You know, can you share it? Do you have to attribute it? Can you commercialize it? Um, you know, do you have to attribute it to the original author? And in doing that, you know, independent artists like Randall Monroe, the, the guy who creates the XKCD comics, found a livelihood. You know, so Randall does no advertising. He doesn't have to. It's all word of mouth. But the fact is, he gives you permission to use his cartoons. And I dare you to find a technical presentation now that does not have an XKCD panel in at least you know one of, one of the slides. And if it's done correctly, it will say, you know, XKCD, there will be a link to it. There's an attribution. There's a reference to it. It's not commercialized. So no one's making books out of his comics. But he created an audience of millions of people who follow him who do buy his commercial products. And he created a market out of this by not in a way that the historical view of copyrighted print matter would have ever thought possible. How do we do the same thing with our data? What is the equivalent of Creative Commons for my personal data? Can you share it? Do you have to attribute it? Um, what can you do with it? How many times can you share it? Do you, should you notify me if you find anything weird in there? You'd be surprised. Some people like, oh, absolutely want to know. And other people are like, I do not want to know because I don't want to know what's going to go wrong with me down the road. I'd rather, I'd rather live my life and find out. And it's not up to us as practitioners in the healthcare space to decide that for people. We have to be respectful of the data, the sources of the data. Again, it's people on the other side of it. And uh, I, I think we're going to see, much as we did in um, Creative Commons as applied to copyrighted material, either going to see a real shift, a real groundswell of how we think about our personal data, our behavioral data, our healthcare data, even our location data, as something of value and something around which we want to wrap this 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 much finer grain, much more multidimensional view of of how we share it and how we derive value, and essentially how we how we steward it on behalf of others.
0: Oh, love that. I love that. You did not disappoint on that one. That was phenomenal. So, uh, yeah, I I happen to be really interested in data privacy and how people think about data and, you know, which side do we err on? How sophisticated are people when it comes to their data and so forth? So I I just I'm really glad that you talked about that specifically. Uh, And so the the last thing, uh, you know, I always like to end uh, with this question is, so what is your favorite leadership uh, quote, saying or motto? And why is that the one?
1: So, um, Pat Riley basketball coach, um, wrote this great book called the winner Within, And and in there, he talks about his time with the Lakers and one of his non-starting players came to him and said, Hey coach, you know, contract year. I need more time. And he said, great. Those are the starting five. Go over and tell which of your teammates that you will be taking his minutes. And when you can do that with a straight face, I'll play you. But if you don't feel comfortable doing it, why are you asking me? And I think this this idea of don't ask your manager to be your apologist. Rather, get to the point where your value is very very clear, and your manager becomes your um, your promoter, your advisor, your advocate. Uh, it's it's a very difficult thing to do because you always expect you know. And again, your 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 manager as your coach has some responsibility to help you develop, to help you grow in that but it should never be, well, I need X. So, you know, please go get me X. Like, well, if you can't say, you know, to the person that you're taking X away from that that's okay, why would you ever expect someone else to go do it for you? And, and, you know, we, we, you'll find this conversation pop up again. And again, Whether you're talking about promotion or you're talking about partnership or, you know, you know, again, you're talking about, about things in the more classic coaching or, or sports uh, context. It It's an, it's a, a example that has served me well because, it focuses the conversation not on what you don't do, but how do we get you to do more of the things that you either do well or that you want to do well because that's how you that's how you earn your playing time. Whether whether it's on the court or, or, or you know in, in the corporate board, it's how you're in your playing time.
0: Oh Hal. Whew, this has been phenomenal. I love that. I love that. Well, I want to thank you again for joining us today. This has been so full of insights, everything I hoped and more. I want to give a big shout out to Molecula for sponsoring the podcast and making all this possible. Please make sure that you follow the show, write a great review. We'd love to hear from you and please be on the lookout for the next show. Thanks again, Hal. It's been an awesome Leading with Data podcast
1: with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Leading with Data podcast. I'm your host, Jason Dorsey, and it was so much fun to get to bring this podcast to you. Big thanks to our sponsor, Molecula, for making this possible. For those of you who'd love to learn more about Molecula, definitely worth checking them out. You can visit Molecula.com, and I look forward to you joining us on the next podcast.